It's a privilege to be in the room and to do this. Um, Jared said that. My name is Mike Campbell, and um, I love to teach God's Word, and I work with a ministry called Pressing Pause, and it kind of takes me all over the place working with ministries around the country and speaking and talking about discipleship strategy and organizational strategy and just through the lens of the Word. Our mission at our ministry is to help people live vertically so they could lead horizontally. We want to push people to Jesus, so in doing that, then we lead in our areas of influence really, really well without getting in the way ourselves, because we will do that, and letting do, let God do what he wants to do. And so that's what I'm about. Uh, I am thankful to be here. Uh, it's interesting. We did. We had a meeting a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago with Josh as we talked through the sermon series. He was preaching on death, which is always one of those topics that makes everybody a little bit, oh, shoot, where are we going to go with this thing? But the reality is it's a great topic because it's relevant to us, and we all think about it. And when you get older, like myself or my friend Marvin, who's looking at me right now, you know, it's a lot closer, right, Marvin, than it was yesterday. Amen. It's a lot closer. And so um, we do think about it. And so we should think about it in a healthy way. And once you understand God's purpose for it, then you can figure out how in the world I'm going to live in it for the rest of my life until that day when I do find Jesus and meet him face to face. And so I don't dwell on it. I don't worry about it. I'm actually motivated by it because I want to live today different than I did the previous part of my life, right? That's the privilege of getting the opportunity to do that. So seeing death the way God sees it. And Josh started that off last week, and I think I get the opportunity to kind of carry that on. And so here's my question. Here's like the, the idea this morning is this whole idea of living the dash. How do you live the dash? And what do I mean by that? What do I mean when I say living the dash? And what I mean is this. You've all seen like been to a cemetery or a, a funeral, and there's always our birth year, and then followed up by that is our death year. But in between is probably the most significant part of the whole thing. It's the dash. And that might encompass 28, 70, 79 years. It might, oh, 79 on both. It might encompass that or maybe a little less or a little bit more. But what is happening in the dash? How do we live the dash? How do we get motivated by the impact we make in our 79 years or our 51 years or your 100 years? Whatever it is, how do you live the dash? And so I thought this was like this really cool, pithy, unique phrase that I came up with. I Googled it and oh shoot, guess what? There's a book. I didn't write it. There's a poem. I didn't come up with it. But still, it's relevant because it is what impacts the decisions that we make today. So how do we live the dash? And so rarely, you all know this, probably everybody in this room has been to a memorial service or a funeral service or has been close to somebody who has passed away. And there's just a few moments in the lives of people, and it's usually written by a family member. It's an obituary. And it has a few statistics, right, about that person's life, when they were born, when they were die, uh, dead, who survives them, what did they do, what's, what's going to happen with their wishes, where do they want their donations to go, and where can you send flowers, and when will we celebrate and talk about it. And then there's that moment where we gather together in a room like this often, and you spend about an hour, an hour and 15, actually maybe for the first time unpacking the dash. 
in that person's life. It's not something we normally do. Like I don't call Jared and say, hey, let's spend an hour together just so I, just so I can honor you for an hour. Like he would probably love that, wouldn't he? But we don't do that. We don't make those phone calls. It's usually in those moments. And so for me in my ministry life, which is now like 20 plus years, probably, not probably, it is, the greatest privilege of anything I've ever done in ministry over the last 20 years is memorial services and sitting with families. I feel like beyond honored to sit in living rooms and ask questions of family members about the people that they love and miss. I mean, I, I, I don't even know. Literally, I was trying to think about it this morning. I, I, countless funerals and memorial services. I don't know how many I've done. I don't know how many weddings or baptisms or births I've been a part of. But I'm telling you, the memorial service for me is, is really, oddly enough, like a highlight for me in ministry. I love sitting in a living room and caring for people and asking questions and just trying to be that presence, that ministry of presence, that calming voice in the midst of chaos. And I've, you know, I've done friends memorial services. I've done children of friends memorial services. I've done memorial services that are happy. I've done some that are tragic. I've done my grandmas. I've done my dads. I've done some hard ones. And it's an honor to walk in that and unpack the dash in the lives of people. It's a privilege. And so when you do that, what we all hope to do is unpack it and handle it with enough care and grace that maybe someday our lives would, would we'd hear words like, well done, good and faithful servant. That I lived my dash well enough that in some moment I would stand before my Savior and he'd say, Mike, you did good. You didn't do perfect, but man, you loved me well and you loved a few people well along the way. And so those words are found in Matthew 25, 23. And you remember this parable. It was a conversation between the master and his servants. And he said, listen, I've given you something to invest. You did well. And because of that, because you were faithful over a little, I want to give you a little bit more and see how you do it. And I want you to enter into the joy of your master. So there is a moment coming in my life, in your life, if Jesus is the Lord and Savior and leader and redeemer of your life, that you will come face to face with him. And it's an awe-inspiring moment. And for some of us, it could be in just a moment. And for some of you, it might be 80 years from now. But, but hear me, it's coming. It's coming. And there's a conversation that will take place. And so my gut is in that conversation that there are some things that we are aware of that help us live our dash better. And there are some things that we're probably not aware of. And there are many things that will challenge us outside of our comfort zone. And so because I'm not on staff here and I don't get to go to church here, I get to challenge you outside of your comfort zone. And then I get to leave and you get to go home and you get to chew on this and think about it and figure out where are the areas of your life that God may want to do some work. So your little hyphen means something at the end of the day. So, let me pray, and we'll get into it. Father, I was praying as we worship that you would just do your thing this morning and that your words of the Old Testament would come, come out, that they would be real, that it would be practical, that it would make sense to us this morning, and that you would speak through your text and through your word, and that we would be inspired by your word and by your truth and by your history Lord, that we would leave here in a few moments knowing 
that you are real and believing what we know to be real. And so that's our prayer this morning. I pray, God, you would do your thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody in this room has a story. Everybody in this room was born somewhere. Everybody in this room had an upbringing. Some of you had both parents. Some of you had one parent. Some of you may not have had any of your original parents. You may be adopted. You may have been fostered. We all have a story. We all have an upbringing. And in that upbringing in your story, it determines what you think and feel right now. It affects you. It affects our identity. A lot of years of doing ministry, every single conversation that I have with people, it always, if you ask the right question, ultimately goes back to what do we think that, God, that, that we think about ourselves? What do we think about ourselves? Do we hear the voice of the enemy or do we hear the truth of the Lord? And most of us, if we're being honest, we have moments or days or months or years where we do not hear what, the God, what God says about us, but rather what the enemy says about us or what culture says about us. Am I right? It's just a reality. It's what we wrestle through. And so we need to understand our identity and where we stand so we can then truly live out what we're called to live out. Amen? That's what we're called to do. So this is not an identity sermon, but I can't talk about the dash without talking about identity. So let me just rattle off a few to you. Our identity says in 1 John 5 that we have hope, that we have something that we can believe. Scripture says that I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to wrestle. You might, but you don't have to. You can know that you know that you know. Philippians 4 says that when we have appropriate identity, we can have fulfillment and contentment. We don't have to have anxiety and doubt and worry. You may, but you could choose to be free. Jeremiah 29, 11. We have purpose in our identity. We're not here just to live 73 years on earth and just fade away with no impact. Where it just looks like those four, those four little numbers next to your dash. You don't have to do that. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Not for evil, but for good. Gosh, identity. We have security. Genesis 1. Genesis 1.27 says that you and I were created in the image of a holy, perfect God. When I doubt that, that's on me and whether or not I chose to believe the enemy that day. The scripture says I'm created in the image of a perfect creator. My identity sometimes can get messed up and hijacked because of my belief and joy. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When I understand my standing with a good God, I understand that there is joy in that. Again, I may not always believe it or live it, but it's true. Romans 5.1 says that I've been justified by faith, and in that there is peace with God through Christ Jesus. Romans 5, verse 1. So my identity, there's hope, there's fulfillment, there's contentment, there's purpose, there's security, there's joy, there's peace. And if I could grasp that, then the way I live that middle section, that dash, looks totally and completely different, doesn't it? 
So, we understand this identity, we understand these gifts that should give me an enthusiasm and a desire to live differently and to represent differently and to make different choices and not to be apathetic, not to get fat and lazy and just coast. I don't want to coast. How many of you know what you were rescued from? Now, does knowing what you were rescued from make you want to coast? No, we don't want to coast. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I was thinking, in Scripture, who could we look at that has lived this dash well? And I chose Esther. I want to talk about Esther this morning. So I, I um, this is funny. Uh, you guys, if you're on Instagram, you ever see these alabaster journals that come up in your feed, you know, and they always say sold out, and they're real pretty. And I was looking, I was reading this this week on Esther. Man, I'm a sucker for Instagram like ads, okay? Like, it's back in the back, but I bought this cool wallet on Instagram that has like the, you know, the, the, the Apple little fob thing in there so I can track it because I lose it all the time. If I showed you the wallet, it's like in three pieces. It just, it lasted like four months. But this is legit, y'all. So let me read, let me read just this first opening paragraph, and then I'm going to get into the scripture. Okay. Esther is a curious book of the Bible. Throughout the entirety of its text, 10 chapters, God goes unmentioned. This could seem strange at first for something that's within the biblical canon. But in this dramatic, plot-twisting, excitement-driven story, God is at work. Historically, Esther was written to recount the significance of the Jewish, Jewish festival Purim. It commemorates the saving of the Jews from, from Haman, which we'll get into in just a little bit. He's the book's antagonist, and he had this plot that he was going to destroy the Jewish people. The brilliance of Esther is it's so mysterious, its unique intermingling of chance and divine providence. While its plot appears random and chance-filled at first, it's an invitation to see it as a fateful encounter with God. So there was this woman who did marvelous and miraculous things. And she should, this morning, by the time I'm done unpacking 14 characteristics of her life, there should be some things in there that you want to include in your dash. So there's your hint this morning to pay attention to those 14 things. Because this was a woman, despite her circumstances, that did marvelous things. So let's jump in. I am not going to read all 10 chapters, but I'm going to do what I like to do, and that is paraphrase some of this in my vernacular. So you got to put up with it. So here goes. Let's go. Chapters 1 and 2, King Xerxes. So this brother throws this really lavish banquet for himself. Just from the jump, I'm going to tell you, this guy was a bit ruthless. He was definitely a little bit careless. He was definitely narcissistic, and he had high, high value of himself, which is pretty indicative of most of the men in significant leadership in this day. That was like culturally what was taking place. And so he was throwing this party so he could show off. And scripture says, hey, I want you to come see all the stuff I have. So he invites all his fellows over to that. And at the same time, his wife, Queen Vashti, she's throwing a party for her lady friends. But in the midst of this party, these brothers over here, he says, I should have my queen come over here and put on her crown so I can show it off to my fellows that are at this party. And guess what the queen does? What does she say? She says, no, I'm not doing that. 
I'm over here with my ladies. And so what does he do? If you go on in chapter one, it says he removed her as queen. Now, it doesn't tell us that he had her executed. My gut is that he probably did. He may not have done it instantly, as we're going to see he normally does to folks. But he definitely removed her as queen. And then all of his servants in his court said, hey, um, hey king, you should probably tap into all of these virgins that you've gathered from around the territory. You've created this harem, because in there is probably somebody that's worthy of being a queen. And guess who he spots? Esther. He spots Esther, he invites her in. Now here's what's happening. Now at this point, nobody knows her history. She's just a beautiful woman who has been uh, brought into as a refugee into this community, this Persian community. But what happens is, or what is happening is she has Jewish roots. That does not fly well in this community for her to be the queen. But she has a cousin named Mordecai who had raised her, and Mordecai basically said, listen, do not tell anybody in this kingdom your true identity. You're lucky to be alive. You have a little bit of influence. Why don't you come in there, but do not tell anybody. So Mordecai had adopted her because you'll find out later, you know, she, she didn't have parents, so he raised her like his own daughter. So incidentally, and this doesn't impact the story today, but depending on which text you read, especially in Jewish culture and some Jewish texts, some would argue that it's her uncle versus her cousin. It doesn't affect the context of the story. Regardless, he was like a dad to her. He raised her. But he said, listen, you should, you're, you're going to be the queen, but don't tell anybody. It's a secret. So that's taking place. She has favor in the eyes of the king. She's crowned queen, but her Jewish heritage will remain a secret. So fast forward to Esther chapter, chapter 3 and 4. In the king's court was this brother named Haman. This brother had an attitude. He was not a good guy. And he looked at Mordecai, who also had some favor in the king's court. He said, Mordecai, I need you to bow down to me. And Mordecai says what? He says, no, I'm not doing that. So Haman gets furious, and he says, I don't, I don't appreciate that. I'm not going to tolerate that. So he goes to his boss, the king, and he says, we need to come up with a plan to annihilate him and his people because they knew he was Jewish. We're going to murder him. We're going to annihilate him. And the king's like, well, uh, okay, I, I guess we can do that. So he issues a decree. Decrees can't be reversed. He issues a decree that we're going to annihilate the Jews within this Persian kingdom. Now, I'll talk about this in a minute, but... I'm talking about it now. The Jews were invited into the kingdom. They were inoculated into the culture against their own will. And now they're being exterminated once they're in there. And they're all over the place with what they're requiring of the Jewish people. And so Mordecai gets wind of the fact that he is on the chopping block, literally. He gets wind of that. And so he goes to Esther, his cousin, and he says, Esther... Unless you speak up to the king, our whole entire population, our people group, me included, are about to get wiped out. I need you to step up. I need you to save us. I need you to rescue our people. And she's like, initially, she's like, no, I'm not doing that. I know how it goes for women in this culture, and I'm not about to speak up to that king because I remember kind of what happened to Queen Vashti earlier, just and she wouldn't even wear a crown. That's all that got her into trouble. I'm not about to go to this man and say what I'm about, what you need me to say. But he urges her, he says, I, listen, will you intercede on the behalf of us? And probably the most popular verse 
in the book is right here. Oh, there she is. I missed it. Verse 14, chapter 4. He says to her, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will probably rise for the Jews from another place. It's going to happen. But you and your father's house, you will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You've heard that before. For such a time as this, Esther, you have been placed in this. Will you help? And so at the end of three and the end of four, and I don't have a slide, but you see this, this introduction to her faithfulness and her faith. Even though God isn't mentioned, what she does is she says, I'm going to gather all of our people. I need you all to pray. I need you to fast because I've got to come up with a strategy to do something. Now, I'm a strategy guy. I love those conversations. And so she's like, she's come along. She's like, we're going to figure this thing out. But before we figure anything out, can we pray? That's a pretty good tactic, yeah? Pretty good tactic. Okay, let's, let's roll on. Esther 5. So she decides... In 5, 6, and 7, I'm going to risk my life. I'm going to approach the king. So she approaches the king, and he comes up to her, and he hands her the golden scepter, and he says, whatever you need, Esther, I will grant it to you. Whatever you need. So she has favor. Now, that does that not feel like Nehemiah, a book before? Boldness of the servant, boldness of the cupbearer to come before his boss, King Artaxerxes, and asked for permission to go back to his hometown and rebuild the wall. Same thing, risks his life. She risks her life, she goes before, and she, she invites the king, and she invites Haman, so now the strategy's built. She invites them to a banquet. And in this banquet, she has a plan to out Haman. But Haman is so narcissistic, and he's so unhealthy, and he's such a vile man, That when he's at the party, he's actually filled with so much pride because he thinks the party's for him because he's the only guest. He has no idea that Esther, man, this girl, she's on it. She's got a strategy. She's about ready to out this brother. And he's like, no, this must be for me. This is all about me. But that's not what happens. What happens is, to be honest with you, uh, he gets angry again. His pride turns to rage because in that little party where it's just him, he sees Mordecai and says, hey, man, remember that time you wouldn't bow to me earlier? I need you to bow tonight. Mordecai's like, no, I'm not going to do that. So in that, Esther's like, tonight's not the night. This banquet, banquet number one, is not the banquet that I'm about to reveal what I need to reveal. And so into the night, they go away. The king, I like what the scripture says, he struggles to sleep. And he's so doggone narcissistic about himself that he begin to put himself to sleep. He reads stories about himself. He wants to read about his reign and rule to impress himself so he'll doze off to sleep. But in that reading about himself to impress himself, he has a memory, a dream about the loyalty of Mordecai earlier in his reign. So while Haman's whole deal was like, we got to kill this brother, we got to build these gallows, we got to take this guy out, it actually has the opposite effect. The king's like, man, Mordecai's my guy. That dude's been loyal to me. I'm not going to take this guy out. And so the next morning, the next morning, Haman comes into the king's court early before anybody else is there. And he's like, I don't know if he says it like this. I would say it like this. He's like, hey, boss, uh, man, it's time. 
Let's take this brother out. We got these gallows that we built. It's time to take him out. And the king says, no, no, no. Actually, something's different has happened. I thought about this guy last night, and he's been really loyal to me. And so I would imagine that the text, or the text doesn't give us the whole conversation, but it would be an interesting conversation between two people, wouldn't it? Now, number one, Haman's obviously a little big for his britches. He has some pride. The king is who he is. He definitely has some power and authority. But you wonder, did Haman just submit to that, or did he push back and roll his eyes? Or what was his response in that moment when the king said, no, 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 we're going to honor him? I know it's a long story, but it's a good story, y'all. So Esther says, okay, it's time for the second banquet. So what does she do in the second banquet? She reveals her identity. I'm Jewish. The king's probably thinking, whoa, what did I do? And she's probably thinking, oh, man, what did I just say? I've just cost myself everything. So Esther, she gives her identity. She exposes Haman's plot. The king is angry, and in that moment, his impetuousness, he orders Haman to be hung instantly on the gallows, instantly. On the same gallows that Haman wanted to hang Mordecai on. Now, I'm going to read this verse because I just think it's weird and cool. Esther 7, 8. The king returns from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Had a little bit too much to drink. The king says, Is this brother even going to assault the queen in my presence, in my house? As the word left his mouth, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face and they hanged him on the gallows just that they had prepared for Mordecai. And verse 10 ends, and the wrath of the king abated. Man, this is not a brother that slept on much. He took care of business like that from the jump. He was done. He didn't tolerate it. And so then we close up this chapter, chapters 8, 9, and 10, Haman's downfall, Mordecai is elevated into leadership. Isn't that that amazing? He's elevated into leadership. Esther then petitions the king. She says, king, again, this lady, the boldness of her and her faith, she goes back to the king and she says, will you please revoke the decree that, that Haman put on our people? And he's like, I can't. I'm the king, but you can't revoke a decree. But here's what I'll do. I'll instill a new decree that will give you all permission to fight us when people are coming after you. And guess what they did? They fought them and they won. The Jewish people won that battle that day. They defended themselves. And everybody was filled with fear because they're like, these people have power and they have authority and they just took us out. They were granted freedom from the rest of their enemies. And then in that, Mordecai institutes this festival of Purim which to this day is still celebrated by the Jewish people to remember the deliverance of the Persian people that day and the victory that they had. And in that festival today, they still read the book of Esther and celebrate her life because of how she led and the boldness she led in her people. So let me summarize this and I will start landing the plane with these 14 things that I want you to see about this woman. In Esther chapter eight, verse six, I feel like it's the best glimpse into this woman's heart. She says this. She says, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see it? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? She's wrestling. How, in other words, in our language, we would say, how can I just sit by and do nothing? Like that's not even an option for her. So, 
When we summarize a life well lived and we look at the dash, I want to look at her life. Number one, this is a woman with great boldness and courage. I'm going to repeat some things here because I do not want you to miss this. She risked her life and to do that required courage in that culture because a woman's not supposed to do that. She's not supposed to do what she did. She lived in this time where if you said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, it would absolutely cost you. And yet she pushed through. So there was great courage and great boldness. And even in that, she found herself as queen, living with a man who was pretty ruthless. Great, great courage, great intelligence. Number two, she had a level of humility as a leader in living her dash. She was from some, a, a pretty tough beginning, wasn't she? This Jewish woman now finds herself a queen over a nation in the king's court with all the privileges, all the rights, all the responsibilities. She was known in scripture as this beautiful woman. That's what she was known for, but never in scripture do we see her taking advantage of that. She's just, one of the girls who happened to be appointed the queen. Number three, she sought God. Now I read you in this, we don't see God mentioned, but we see this chasing of Yahweh. We must fast, we must pray, we need his favor, we need his blessing on these other people that we're gonna have conversations with. She sought God. She was blessed in that. She had this devotion. In our culture, they didn't call it this then, but we would say she was a prayer warrior. How many of you, ladies, this is for you, how many of you have taken 30 days just to bathe something in prayer before you made a decision? Like, that's a challenge, isn't it? 30 days of bringing your friends together and your ladies together saying, ladies, this is the hill that we need to go take. But before we do that, can we slow down? Can we press pause? And can we pray and figure out what God might do? Number four, she demonstrated faithfulness. Despite the danger, despite the things that she might have faced, she was faithful. Now, she hesitated. I don't have a problem with that. You ever hesitated on a decision and still made the decision? In that hesitation is usually where God is nurturing us and growing us and growing our faith. So once we've made the decision on the back end of it, if it goes south, we can say, no, I knew God led us through that, so I stayed with it. It was what I needed to do. And so she was faithful in that decision. Number five, she was incredibly unselfish. She put her life, her privilege, her position, everything on the line for her people and for her cousin who raised her. She chose to risk her life, her position, her privilege. Oh man, number six, she was loyal. Great loyalty to her people and to her God. And you see a little bit in her story, like that's the one word to me that is kind of in all of the elements of her story, this idea of just loyalty to her people, loyalty to the cause, faithfulness to follow through, faithfulness to take a chance, faithfulness to build a strategy. She was loyal to her people. I don't know if any of us in this room will ever have the position to be a queen or not, but I do know that what comes with it is a lot of privilege and a lot of opportunity. 
But her loyalty to her people and to her cousin who raised her and gave his life to raise her and changed his life to raise her trumped all of that stuff. Number seven, a lot of wisdom. This was a world that was dominated by men. Women in her space, even as queen, did not get permission to use their voice. And if they did, again, it came with great risk and probably not much reward. Just a lot of risk. But she used that to speak wisdom. And these ladies that were in kind of her tribe, they listened. We know just the fact that she could gather a whole group of ladies to a party and then later come back and gather that same group of ladies to just to bathe her in prayer in this decision that she had influence and power and wisdom. I also think, I, I put in my notes, just the ability to navigate the politics of a kingdom in that day and to be able to not make a decision that would end with you being killed later in the day had to be pretty treacherous. And let's not forget that she was brought in into a harem. And what that must have done to your identity and your self-worth and to navigate that and yet to lead victoriously through it. That's a big deal and we can't, we can't forget it. Number eight, she was obedient. She was an ob obedient uh, servant of God. She was obedient to her cousin who had rescued her. Number nine, she demonstrated care and compassion. Her... Uh, Ability to care for her people was more significant than this whole idea of self-preservation. If it costs me my life, I will speak up. Same with Nehemiah. You know, this book, Nehemiah, 13 chapters, young leader, a bit impetuous, great strength, great boldness. Then, you, then it follows up, and we have the book of Esther, 10 chapters, young woman, finds herself in leadership, trusts God for big things. The next book in the Old Testament is Job. Not a better book that talks about patience and perseverance and long-suffering and faithfulness. Three distinct char characters going through hard things and hard decisions. We have something to learn from these characters in Scripture. Great compassion from her. Number 10, strong, 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 strong. An ancient day Cinderella, brought into a home that wasn't hers, no family, put to work, treated unfairly, at the end of the story, ends up becoming a hero to her people. She ended up being the legit queen. She was an orphan. She came to Persia as a refugee. I already mentioned this. She was forcibly taken into the king's harem. Like most women of her time, she had zero say in her life and her direction. Yet despite all this, her people said, that's our girl. She's our hero. We've got, and, and, and they celebrate her to this day. Let's not forget that. There's still a celebration that takes place. One of the most revered women in all of Scripture, Old and New Testament. Number 11, very strategic, very thoughtful. She didn't just wing it. When you, there's that much on the line and that much to risk, you don't just roll into the king knowing what you knew about Queen Vashti and say, uh, hey, babe, this is what I need. I need you to do this. Can, can we do this party? And, and oh, by the way, I'm Jewish. You just don't do that. It costs you everything. And so she had a strategic plan. That strategic plan was less about her wisdom and more about the power of God through prayer and fasting, which then led 
to this idea of man-made wisdom, i.e., living vertically so then you can lead horizontally? You see the tie? That's what we're called to do. Number 12, she triumphed over adversity. She triumphed over adversity from the jump, from the day she was born without parents. She triumphed over adversity. So much so that she had the boldest. She got everything she wanted in this story, right? But yet she still said, hey, uh, hey, king, do you think you could just remove that whole decree? Totally? Said, no, I can't do that, but I will give you permission to fight these folks. She got what she needed. She got what she wanted. She had victory. Two left. She left a legacy. She left a legacy. The festival still celebrated. In fact, the words attached to that is the celebration celebrates her courage. It celebrates her faith. And it celebrates God's providence to his people. And the final one, and I saved this one purposely for last, is she overcame a challenging start. So I don't know your story, but I started this by saying we all have one. I don't know where you come from. I don't know, did you have multiple step-parents? Did you have your original mom and dad? Or were you by yourself and didn't have anybody and you got adopted? Do you have, uh, you know, like, like me, did you have, I don't even know, six, six step-moms? I mean, I don't know what your story is, but here's what I know. That if you're going to live the dash, it does not matter where you begin but it matters where you finish, right? So I don't care that she came from that home that she came from or that she was almost abducted into a harem. What matters is what she did when she came out of it and how she led her people, her people, not just a small handful, her culture, her people. How do you finish, not where do you start? Uh, I want to read this just so I don't miss it because I'm all over the place. Uh, I gave you Esther's beginning at the end to remind you and to remind myself that where you start doesn't define where you finish. If you're going to live the dash, then live it. And live it with all those things that I just rattled off about Esther. And live out those 14 things to your people and to your king. We don't have a King Xerxes anymore. We have a King Jesus. And the people that are under your roof or the people you work with or the people that are you sitting by or the people that are in your living room in your small group, those are your people. So how will you live out those 14 with them? Here's my question as I start to close. What will you demonstrate to your people and to your king? What will they see? What will your dash look like? Living the dash requires a right and authentic relationship with Jesus. And that consists of two things. You have to know the truth, and then you have to believe the truth. It's not enough just to know it. You have to believe it. Head knowledge is not going to trump heart knowledge. That's the gospel. We know that when he speaks in the gospel, what we, what we know is that what was spoken in the gospel is true and that we must believe it. And there's two things. Knowledge of the revelation that has been made by the Son, that he has equality and authority to his Father. And number two, got to believe that. You got to have belief in the truth of it, that God speaks through the Son. Now, I want you to hear this. Belief and knowledge should lead us to right living. Amen? 
It has to lead us to right living. Right living has us asking ourselves questions along the way. And these questions will challenge you and inspire us and lead us to a fuller purpose, i.e. the dash, in this journey. So I want to rattle off to you a handful of questions. These questions were something that I mentioned last week when I taught at, uh, at my church. But I'm like, it is pretty appropriate for today. And here they are. And I would imagine a couple of them will make you uncomfortable, which is a good thing. Because they make me uncomfortable. You should have to write it and then say it. It'll really make you uncomfortable. Are you willing to believe what God says? Are you willing to trust who he says he is? Are you willing to acknowledge him and the things that he says about himself and the things he says about you? Are you willing to give yourself up or give something up for his case, for his cause? Are you up for the price that that might cost you? Can you say no to something that you really want to say yes to? Can you trade in apathy for passion? Could you pull over for a stranger? Can you serve the homeless? Could you house a refugee or give money to somebody that's different than you? Could you embrace and invite in somebody who thinks different sexually than you? How do you live with people that are all around you that look and feel different? Can you give it all? Can you stop scrolling your feed? Could you put down the game controller? Could you support a local ministry or a local missionary? Could you support a global ministry or missionary? Could you change your career if God were to call you to do so? Are you able to say I'm sorry to the person sitting next to you if you need to? Do you believe him? Can you open your bank account? Can you be generous? Can you trust that God has your finances figured out way before you do? What if your 401k is not as fat as you'd like it to be? Are you okay? Can you make it work? Can you lead a small group? And can you serve across the way with young people? Can you invite some teenagers into your house and just point them towards Jesus even though they think you're awkward? Can you start a ministry when your friends think you're crazy? Does what you believe and what you know, does it impact your decision making? Does it change how you pray? Are you less selfish? Are you willing to submit to something you don't fully understand all the time? Can you die to your own desires? And can you put some other people ahead of you? That's what we're being called to do. That's what living the dash means. That we would look back and we won't be, be there to hear the words. But someday, when I'm out of here and there'll be a handful of people at my service, what will they say about me? Man, it's good that brother's gone. Or they'd be like, no, man, we're really going to miss him. That was an impact. And that's what we're striving for. That's what I want. Not so they'll be nice about me, but because I know that hopefully I made Jesus famous along the way. So you can study, uh, you can read, you can do all the things, and you can still miss Jesus in all of that. You can know the word of God and not know the person of Jesus. I might submit to you that you may not even know, truly know the word of God if you don't know the person of Jesus. You can be a student and still be foolish. You can be a scholar and be ignorant. And you can be direct but not know which direction you're headed. 
You can be lost and not even know it. So we're called to live this dash. We're called to live it. And if you've been called to the Son and you believe and you trust and you know, then you ought to live it. Not because you have to, you get to. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thanks for doing your thing and showing up this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for 10 chapters of a character in the Old Testament, Esther, who lived a bold, courageous, faith-filled, wisdom-filled, selfless, captivating, energetic, purposeful life and how she served her people well. And I pray, God, that we could do the same in our community, in this church. And I thank you for Grace Hills and the movement, the movement of the spirit and worship and teaching and what you're doing with the team that's present and for the leadership that leads this place and for every man and woman that's in front of me this morning and those that are listening online. I pray, God, you would impact through your words, through your words, through your scripture, that we would not waste these opportunities. And I thank you for the privilege of being able to teach your word this morning. Thanks for showing up in this place. God, I pray we would respond through worship and through through generosity and through prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.